Welcome back to Sleep for Performance podcast. Today, I am joined by Professor Gillian Dorian. Did I get that right? Sure did. Wow. I have a habit of butchering everybody's name and title on this podcast, so I'm glad I got one right. That's great. So um, thanks, Gillian, for coming on today. I know you're extremely busy, and thanks for uh, rescheduling, because I've been pretty busy myself, so I really appreciate you making the time for us today. No worries. You can call me Jill. Jill. Okay. No worries. Um, it's like my old joke when people say, do you make people call you a doctor? And I say, only the asshole, so you can call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I said that's my mother and she didn't like it. <laughs> so I don't find that very funny. So I think it's hilarious. But anyway. <laughs> um, so Gillian, you are currently at the uh, University of South Australia. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. No worries. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are as a person, where you grew up and, and you know, you did study... Uh, in the area of psychology and, and so on. So how did you get onto this weird and wonderful path? Where I grew up. So um, I'm from Adelaide. I grew up here, beautiful Ghana country. And I grew up in the Western suburbs. I uh, spent a lot of time playing music. Uh, if you'd asked five-year-old me what I wanted to be, I would have said paleontologist or archaeologist. Ah. Um, and then I got a little bit older and I liked chemistry quite a lot. Um, and then I did my work experience in a chemical analysis laboratory and discovered I'm way too clumsy for chemistry. <laughs> so then I thought, well, psychology is a mix of uh, humanities and science. So it sounds like it would be a good fit for me. And so I started psychology and really enjoyed it. And did you do psychology at UNSW, UNSW, UNESA as well? Yeah, I actually started off at Adelaide Uni and I did psych and French were my two majors and then um, did my honours in psych and my PhD um, and my PhD was at UniSA and then later on I came back to uni and did a Master of Biostatistics at Melbourne, University of Melbourne. Oh, very good, we'll come back to that as well. So you've been basically at UniSA for your entire oh. life. A long time. I did pop overseas and do a quick postdoc, but then I came right back. And whereabouts did you do the postdoc? Uh, University of Pennsylvania, Unit for Experimental Psychiatry. That Is that David, David Dinges? Yep, yep. Is that where Siobhan Banks went as well? Yeah, she went after me. We didn't uh, actually cross over, but yeah. And now we're working in the same place. So that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm always intrigued by what people wanted to do when they were younger. And it's great that you said about like being a paleontologist because... <laughs> You know, I was talking to Nicola Barkley yesterday from Oxford University and, and she just recently left her and started her own business. And she said when she was 17 and finished her A-levels, she wanted to own a cake shop. Oh, <laughs> that I never so wanted, good. I never wanted to be a sleep researcher. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I've said this many times, nobody kind of sits looking out the window, chewing on a pencil going, someday I'm going to be a chronobiologist. Someday I'm going to be a sleep scientist. Like no. we, we all seem to stumble into it by accident, you know? Yeah. Um, which is quite nice because Siobhan, I think, was theatre and drama background. She was. That's right. Yeah. 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 There's another guy I had on the podcast, but he does a lot of physiology and, and over like he looks at the, re the balance about like training and recovery. So, you know, can you overtrain and under recover and so on? His name is Brandon Marcella and he's an American guy and he does a lot of consulting out to the military. But his undergrad was in theatre and set design. Oh, fantastic. So it's like, how do you go from that to that? You know, it's it's it's, it's brilliant. I think it makes for such a weird and wonderful world. It's great. It is. It's so, yeah. So, um, so you went to Pennsylvania, came back. Um, most people are like, I'm getting out of school. I'm anti-establishment. But you went back <laughs> instead there most of your life. So you uh, you must have liked that. It must be pretty good. Um, but you, you've you done like a, a ton of research. Like when I look at your Google Scholar, Gillian, or I look at your, um, uh, your outputs on on your profile i'm like where do you, where do i start like you've got so many papers what have you got like over 120 or something i don't know you don't know Something like that. <laughs> is that like i don't care or like i'm so good that i don't even count them anymore or a bit of both <laughs> oh neither of those options i do i care very much um i do a lot of publishing in teams and so that that means the numbers yeah. add up very very quickly no, I'm just teasing. I'm just. I think it's. I think it's great um, to be so kind of con committed to a, a career in research. It takes a lot of time and energy. I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of time and effort that takes. You know, I've often said before that people think that researchers just get a bucket of money off the government. They can sit around pontificating all day, and it's far from that. <laughs> it's a. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah. But um, 
in the, in the earlier part of your career, you did a lot of stuff around, um, I suppose, to kind of sum it up around cognition, sleep deprivation, um, and the effects of like, you know, sustained wakefulness and so on. Um, was this your initial interest in in the research or how did you get started into this? What, what, what were you focusing on? I got started because of my psych background and um, we had a lot of exposure to survey research and um, and other kinds of qualitative methods. But I, I found um, Drew Dawson at the sleep lab at the time and I just saw that they were doing this great work in, you know, in a laboratory with people doing all sorts of interesting things. And I just got addicted to the idea that um, you can create these really weird environments and mess with people's light exposure and day length and sleep timing. And you can find out an awful lot about what's happening to them physiologically and psychologically. And that's where I kind of started. Yeah. And um, a lot of stuff there, like similar night shift work and, and shift work. And this was obviously, this is about 20 years ago. And so it's still very early days in shift work. Um, there wasn't actually that much done really. And I think people often think that sleep science and sleep medicine has been around for like, you know, hundreds of years and we have a crack, but, you know, I think the, the AASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine was formed like in the seventies and eighties. We really kind of had a baseline from there, a little bit of shift work stuff in the eighties, but it hasn't been since probably the late nineties since it really started taking off, particularly more disapplied stuff that I know Drew did around rail. That was sort of um, from about 97 onwards, we see this kind of fatigue-related alcohol consumption, shift work environments and so on happening. When you first got into that, what, what surprised you most about that type of work? I think I was surprised, and this actually was illustrated really clearly to me when um, I think it was 2006, I did a Guinness World Records attempt. Um, I was a scientific support for a DJ who wanted to break the world record for the world's longest dance party. And so I got to follow him and it was, he was aiming for sort of above 87 hours awake. So it was several days and he had to be DJing the whole time. And what was really um, obvious from this experience is that we had medical staff on hand and they're measuring, you know, his hydration levels and heart rate and all those kinds of things. And from a medical perspective, he was fine, but cognitively he started to get incredibly confused and have these amazing hallucinations um, and to watch it was it was really um, uh, shocking and then I got to follow him home and measure his sleep and after nine hours of sleep uh, he woke up and he was fine and so I think um, people are quick to um, miss the importance of sleep loss and in particular the cognitive effects of sleep loss because they're because they're in people's brain and experience rather in their phys- rather than in their physiology at that acute stage, and they're also reversible. Um, and so, sleep uh, for a long time has has been missed in our conversations about importance for safety, which is increasing now. But now, with um, some of these longer term studies coming out about chronic health risk, now mm. sleep is starting to be part of conversations around health as well, which is really really important. So this is an interesting topic here, uh, Jill, that you, that you touched on because, you know, people would look at that and say, well, he, he was awake for 88 hours. He had this sustained wakefulness, which often would happen in the military. And I started my career on the military, spent five years, and probably one of the reasons why I got over it was, was, was being awake at nighttime running around into, into trees. And I can, I can empathize with your DJ friend because I, I remember feeling like that, just feeling completely nauseous and sick and confused and dazed. Um, but I suppose some people would say, well, isn't that okay? Because they got the job done and then within nine hours, the person was fine again. Mm. So what's the problem with like doing that? Like, is there any like, so my retort, that would be what about the long-term damage? Do we know about the long-term damage or is it safe to keep repeating those kind of bouts of sustained wakefulness with short sleep? Well, that's definitely one one question. What's the what's the long term impact? But also in the short term, it depends what you're doing while that's happening. So if you're you know a train driver, you mentioned the rail research before, and a lot of my um, earliest research was uh, in the field was with train drivers, and that was amazing. Um, just seeing the levels of impairment you can get after one or two night shifts in a row, mm-hmm. um, even on really well practiced professional tasks like train driving. Um, then you start to have a think about, um, you know, the importance of that cognitive impairment. And it doesn't take three nights awake, as you know, before you're impaired sufficiently 
to see negative impacts that can increase safety risk in the workplace. Yeah, this is interesting. And I and some people often say, well, you know, well, now that we've been doing shift work for many years, surely we must have adapted to, to doing shift work as a society. We've had electricity for 150 years. Surely we've adapted. If I've been doing shift work for the last 20 years, haven't I adapted? Uh, I get used to it. I'm fine. Um, what sort of impact is it for people who are doing shift work in those environments for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Um, what, what, do you know what the impact is on their long-term health from that? Well, I think if you look at people that have been in shift working careers for decades, you can see sort of two clusters. One cluster of people are really healthy uh, and then the other cluster are much more vulnerable to some of these impacts like um, uh, issues with performance and safety, but also chronic sleep problems and then all of the uh, chronic health issues, gastrointestinal cardiovascular effects, um, and also the uh, mental health disturbance. And then um, some of these interesting studies suggesting now a link with um, cancer, although that's much, mm. much more um, uh, controversial at this point. But um, so you see uh, a vulnerable group, but you also see a group that, um, that cope really well. And so um, we've tended to write that group off for a while um, because um, they mess with our error bars in our quantitative studies. And also <laughs> they, um, uh, we, we kind of say, oh, that's a healthy worker effect. And if, if you weren't coping well, you would drop out. Yeah. Um, but the reality is not everyone can choose what their job is. And a lot of people need to, um, need to do these shift working jobs to, to live. And also um, there are a lot of ways that, uh, workers adjust their behavior to try and keep them healthy and safe and some of those actually appear to be quite successful and so some of the more recent work um, we've been doing is, is looking at shift worker coping strategies and try and document those and map them against the literature and work out which ones might be responsible for keeping people healthy across these long careers. And so what have you found so far looking at that Jill is there any certain kind of markers that people could you know pull on today whether it be exercise, diet, um time of sleep or whatever might, might be out there? What, what Do you have a sense of what they might be? Yeah, well, I think there's a menu of strategies. And so some of them are sleep-related. Some of them are about um, exercise. Some of them are about how we help each other in the workplace to make sure that potential sources of error don't turn into incidents and accidents. Um, but if you are looking for sort of general markers, one of the strongest predictors we've found is um, that if you look at people's approach or coping style, people who take an engaged coping style, so that's the people that are more likely to engage in active problem solving, um, more likely to use cognitive reappraisal to th see things as challenges rather than threats, people who are likely to reach out and, and make the most of their emotional support. Um, other people that are more likely to end up with these um, positive behaviours and then better health profiles. Whereas if you're someone who tends to be um, engaged in wishful thinking to solve problems, if you're highly self-critical and if you emotionally withdraw, then we tend to see worse uh, impacts across the lifespan. So it shows the importance of not just the individual but the psychosocial environment when we're talking about supporting shift workers to stay healthy. So obviously, I'm just thinking about the context of this and some of the work that I've been involved in from consultancy and research will be something like a truck driver on a mine site, very isolated, very lonely, uh, train drivers as well might be the same, even airline pilots to a certain extent as well, even though they're surrounded by lots of people, but they're very, um, they're kind of isolated. I suppose they, they will probably work in pairs, but that would probably be like the next level down. Are these type of jobs that would, would have this kind of... Uh, isolation and not have these emotional networks and support around them well I guess it depends where the emotional support happens I mean some emotional support could happen on shifts like we see with nurses sharing chocolate cake at midnight and talking about um, yeah. what's going wrong for them and that's really useful um, morale booster but you do have a lot of truck drivers and train drivers and other people who are working alone um, I guess it depends what happens when they get back to the depot or when that when they get home or um, when they do have time to socialize and we also know that the shift work schedules are often at times of high social value so that impacts negatively on social life 
um, generally. Um, but what's also interesting now as we see these technologies come in is um, what, what does working alone mean? And so um, typically you might have seen um, train drivers in freight trains have two drivers like we see with pilots. Um, and then now we see this trend going from uh, two drivers to one in a lot of um, areas yeah. but at the same time we've got increased uh, radio communication and increased levels of um, controller interaction and so uh, have we got a technological person with us so what does it look like to be working in a team and um, might not just be facilitated through being there um, physically which I think is an interesting area for future work. So more digitally integrated and socially connected through those technologies yeah 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 yeah, that's quite interesting because we've worked with a number of companies that do that, um, you know, from mining and oil and gas where they've gone like this, these like remote operations type centers to basically take people out of high risk environments um, in terms of the location, cut down on costs. Obviously, so there's not as much travel, allow people to, to, to work from, you know, a residential or a, or a metropolitan environment, but still in a shift work environment, which obviously can introduce a whole new set of, of risks um, as well. It's not always a case of we moved into the metro area and there's no shift work risk. Sometimes it's actually exacerbated because of commute time and other family yes. pressures at home, you know, compared to being in a, in a fly and fly outside. But it is, it is an interesting thing that you discussed there about the integration of those technologies and comms, which I, I never considered before about being a, a connectivity tool, really, to make people feel included. That's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and I do also think it's really interesting. You're mentioning about the you know the fly and fly out, and you think that it would be um, you know instantly an improvement in safety if people weren't away from their families. But we also know that um, uh, there is that isolation and disconnection for some people. But also having that um, quarantined time, if there's good sleeping areas, having that quarantine time when they're not at work, that's not um, promised to any other. Um, uh, you know, necessary thing that they have to do. Um, they often get quite good sleep um, if the conditions are right. And so it's, yeah, putting people um, out of the fly in, fly out um, scenario is has risks and benefits. So I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, because it depends on a whole host of factors. Obviously, there's there's a suburb they live in, the amb ambient noise of that environment. There's the home yep. environment, whether it's young kids or, or not. Mm. Um, you know, whether people are sleeping at home during the day. Uh, is, there a, is there a building site next door? Is a house getting demolished? Like, these are all these things you can't control. Whereas That's when you're on right. a mine site, you're in a very specific control environment that is somewhat conducive to sleep or allows you that kind of, you know, that time for sleep. Whereas in a residential environment, it can be more difficult. And that probably leads back into um, a question I wanted to ask you on night shifts, because you were saying about the performance on night shifts. How many night shifts do we have to do before we start seeing, you know, um, a deleterious effect on our cognitive performance? When, when do we see that happening in terms of a marker? Because some people often say that they get used to night shift and they can do like continuous night shifts forever. Yeah, well, I think, and I, I think there's some merit to that argument. I think the answer is, it depends on how um, much sleep you get during the day in between and how well you're um, physiologically, you know, adapting circadian um, phases shifting to adapt to the night shifts. And so if you um, don't really get great day sleep, uh, we see that by this, you know, even the second night, but certainly the third night, um, we can start seeing performance deficits that we might be concerned about, at least when we put people in simulators. Um, but they're still doing sort of um, analogs of their of their work tasks. But then if you put people in a sleep lab and you um, put them on a simulated night shift, you start seeing that their um, circadian rhythm starts adapting and their sleep during the day is really good because sleep labs are really dark and really quiet um, and temperature controlled. And so sort of after three or four nights, their performance is actually starting to look better and their alertness is actually starting to look better overall. So... Um, I think it depends. If you can sleep, it's probably all right. If you can't, then get into trouble relatively quickly. Yeah, we this um, this kind of agrees and disagrees, I suppose, slightly with a study that we did last year in mining, where we looked at um, we had eighty-eight shift workers in a fly-on-fly-out mine. We published mm. in Applied Ergonomics, and um, basically, and I can share this infograph because it's actually quite a nice way. And I've discussed this before. It was quite quite a nice way of uh, of showing it. In terms Ooh. of an infograph, and you've got the 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 um, 
when they wake up on the first fly in there to get to the airport and then they do seven day shifts and then they do seven night shifts and have seven off. Now the sleep duration was measured by actigraphy um, over that time. Um, and as you know, that's like perfect for in these uh, remote environments compared to trying to do PSG every night. Then they shifted over and it's what they call swing day to do the first night shift. Now the alertness measure down there was actually biomathematical modeling using the safety fast model, which has been validated against PVT, which you would know extensively from working in that lab in Pennsylvania. I think David Dinges was the, the instrumental in development of that tool. He sure but was. The alertness um, measure here goes from zero to 100. And to give people an idea, 77% is the same as being intoxicated to 0.05% BAC and blood alcohol concentrate. And 70% is the same as 0.08. And so look, it's not perfect for everybody, but it gives us a bit of an idea or a proxy measure for alertness that may be happening at that time. And with the model, we were able to input the actual sleep duration and the sleep timing to give us that. To give us that, so it's not hypothetical modeling or predicted. It's actually using the the actual data from them. Um, and so you can see here, like on day shift, even with low levels of sleep, because it's daylight hours and that circadian effect. Um, obviously, the sleep was quite low, but kind of hovering in the green above eighty percent the whole time. And to your point, then, when they go on to night shift, the sleep is quite low, but as you can see, there's a bit of a plateauing effect in terms of the percentage of effectiveness or alertness. Although it's still quite low, it still stays the same. So yeah. you, we, you might hypothesize here that if we can pull on this marker here and increase daytime sleep, we could actually drive this back up um, into the higher percentages above the 69 70%, which supports your point, Jill, that it's all about the sleep during the day mm-hmm. um, and how you can manage that. And that's going to definitely help you. And even though there is, I suppose, negative impacts associated with, um, you know, nocturnal work and, and sleeping during the day. But if you can get the sleep and the physiology right, there can be some adaptation to it over time. Um, and like you were saying, control of light and dark cycles and so on. But I think when we put all those factors out in front of people, people go, mm, that's not going to happen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I, I, you know, people, people say they can, they can want to fully adapt to a night shift. It's like, well, are you willing to live your life like that continuously, even on your days off? Exactly. You control light and dark cycles that much. Yeah. And they're like, nah, that's not going to happen. I'm like, well, exactly. That's, that's, that's the point, you know. And it's the $64 million question, isn't it? Should we have shift work schedules that are permanent nights or should we have fast rotating schedules where we don't give the body a chance to adapt or shift at all? And um, uh, I think the, the answer is still it depends. And so we see, you know, places like the US with the police force and nurses, they've got 12, 12 permanent nights and days. And here our nursing is, you know, tends to be three shifts um, rotating. Um, and so, yeah, it really depends on uh, the individual, but also the home environment, how much sleep you're able to get. But also we don't know, talking about the short-term and long-term impact of sleep um, deprivation, we don't know yet the um, long-term impact of moving the clock around a lot mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, keeping it still. So, um, and to your point, you can adapt to a series of night shifts, but then if you have a day off and you want to, actually be on normal social time again um that's all reversed and you have to start again so it's a really hard question isn't it oh very difficult i think and it's and that's why i like exploring these topics with people like yourself because it's so hard to answer them and then you bring in the caveats of like well what about chronotype owls are more suited to night shift versus larks to day shift yeah and then the other one which is actually independent of, of any scientific research is and i've had this in a room you sit in a room and you're going through like the change management process of potentially changing a roster and these questions come up and one guy will go, well, I just think we should do permanent nights. And a guy down the back starts screaming at him. Who's like 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Are you going to look after my kids during the day when I'm on permanent night? And it's like the guy up the front is 55. He's got no kids at home. His mortgage is paid for. He's more of a night owl. So he wants to do that. The guy down the back is a lark. He's got three kids at home and his wife's trying to work as well. Yeah. And so then you can see independent of, any sleep science things it's like people just start arguing you're like whoa 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 hold on we're not making a decision based upon one person's opinion we're looking at all the factors that have to be considered and you can never never try and i often i think like covid was a classic example you can't optimize for one variable you have to consider multiple variables and to get the right schedule well the answer is you're never going to have the right schedule it's never going to happen it's never going to be perfect 
absolutely. And I think some of the people that are most successful in trying to manage their schedules build in um, as much flexibility as possible to let individuals have as much yeah. leeway as possible. So um, does everyone really have to have the same start time or can I let this individual start later? What would I have to set up in my work system to allow individuals to have a bit more autonomy? It's um, uh, One example is the, the way that they um, double shift um, harvesting machines in forestry. So having two people um, sharing a, a machine round the clock. Um, some operators argue that if they just have single shifting, so they might um, lose some of the um, efficiencies they get from keeping these expensive machines running around the clock. But what they gain is only one person needing to use the machine and therefore they can be flex more flexible with their start and finish times and that might be more beneficial for the individual. So, um, yeah, there's these interesting sort of system and work design debates that, that try and solve some of these tricky problems. Yeah, and like, um, you know, I got a background in engineering and business improvement, and this is another another factor that comes in is about availability of equipment, utilization of equipment, effective right. utilization, downtime, schedule maintenance, and all these other factors that you have to build in. Because yeah. I remember about maybe 12, 13 years ago at Fremantle, I can't remember them at a conference. It was one of those transportation type. Managing fatigue in transportation. That's the one. And I that presented might, that might be where I saw you. Maybe, maybe that's where we met yeah. Fremantle, Western Australia. Yeah. I presented some data there on a kind of a case study that I, we were doing whilst I was working at Rio Tinto at the time. And um it was it was interesting because a guy got up and he just said, Well, it seems evident to me, he goes, and I think he was a I think he was a medical doctor. He goes, It seems evident to me, he said, <laughs> that we can just solve this problem. And uh, the answer is staring you in the face. And I went, What's that? And he goes, just don't work at night. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that is the most simplistic, idiotic answer I said to him because <laughs> you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. And yeah. on the other thing as well is you just can't shut things off and shut them back on. You go into oil and gas, it might take you six weeks to start to plant like, you know, or a refinery. This mm. isn't just like switch off the lights and go to bed. You know, this is some of these processes can be very complex and you can't just like stop a train in the middle of nowhere in the Pilbara region. And just drive someone home and go, and we'll drive them back up the next morning to start the train. Like, this is a massive multi-billion dollar industry. And it's all of these factors working together. And so there are all other things that I think don't get taught about. Some, well, not for everybody. Some people do. But they're all the factors that have to be considered when you are designing shift work and you are thinking about all these optimal sleep patterns and shift, shift, shift work and um, scheduling cycles. It's very complex at the end of the day, I think. Mm, I completely agree. But at the same time, it's really interesting um, and looking at, you know, logistic mapping and what would happen if you tweak this, how much flexibility could you build in and how, how much more sleep could you add? And yeah, it's an interesting area. Yeah, it is. It's very, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I do want to pivot on to some of the other work you've done, which is really interesting, which is the relationship between um, shift work and alcohol consumption. And so You've got some of the very first kind of research in this area. And I know there was that seminal research paper, if you want to call it that, by uh, Drew Dawson and is it Catherine Reed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In nature. In nature in 1997, which is, you know, being reproduced so many times in so many different studies or as a sub-analysis, looking at the relationship between sustained hours of wakefulness and blood alcohol concentrate. And many people may be aware of this from ad campaigns. You would have seen, you know, being awake for 17 hours and driving is the same as being uh, having your cognitive um, a cognitive performance or having impairment is similar as someone has has been at zero point zero five percent BSC. Um, so what 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 sort of areas did you look at in this chill when you were when you were exploring this relationship? So my very first uh, study that I was involved with was um, with Nicole Nicole Lamond, and she published with Drew probably the the follow up to that the sequel to that paper you were talking about. Um, and I, so I um, looked at alcohol consumption and sleep deprivation comparison, but I was more focused on um, people's self-awareness of impairment. And so how um, uh, the idea that people may not be able to perceive the, the change in impairment that they experience as they become more sleep deprived in the same way as um, when they become more intoxicated. Um, and so we did some studies in the lab and then we did a similar study um, with Greg Roach um, in uh, train drivers in using a train simulator. And we looked at um, alcohol and um, sleep loss 
as a function of their roster um, and compared those. And so Greg was able to show the, um, the relationship between um, safety and speeding in the simulator um, when you're tired and, and when you um, have a, a blood alcohol level above the legal driving limit. Um, and so, yeah, we've used those, um, that kind of a basic method a number of times and in a number of ways. And um, yeah, qualitatively and quantitatively say, see the same thing, that um, there's these very similar effects of alcohol and sleep loss. And we tend to take uh, alcohol intoxication uh, legislatively, I don't know if that's a word and I can't say it anyway, yeah. seriously, um, but we, we tend to miss out on sleep loss or that's something that's all we're catching up on. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it has important acute um, effects. And so with this as well, is this kind of, this is highly, this has been re reproduced a number of times, hasn't it? That basically yeah. once you hit 17 hours, um, you have these de deleterious or detriment effects to your cognitive performance. What about your physical performance? Is that impaired as well, or is it just from cognition and decision making? We'll say. That's a really good. Uh, that's a really good question. So I think the first thing to um, to just remind ourselves is that seventeen hours awake after um, waking up at about eight a.m., and that the twenty-four hours is after a night awake. So we're talking about, so these studies that were originally done were um, done across a day and then a night. So we um, sort of uh, didn't look at the circadian component. Um, we controlled for that. But um, uh, yeah, the physical changes are interesting. And I think that we haven't necessarily looked at those as closely as we have with the cognitive changes. I think the cognitive changes are most easily observed. Yeah. Um, there have been some really interesting studies looking at things like balance, a um, few people looking at grip strength, other people, I know the Appleton um, group did some studies with simulated um, uh, work of uh, firefighters, I think, um, doing some really physical tasks. That was Grace Vincent. Yeah, she's she's a great researcher. Um, and so, but I still, I think that that's something that we haven't really systematically um, looked at, the physical side. Yeah, on the sleep and performance side from athletics uh, or athletes, it's very difficult to find a marker. And even in some of the military research as well, it's very hard. People seem to basically be able to, if they're highly skilled in their sport or domain, be able to sort of override it, but the cognitive goes. And so what you see is more of those skills, like you said, like uh, accuracy goes, decision-making. Um, sometimes then reaction time is improved uh, with the use of caffeine or stimulants, but yes. accuracy, accuracy has gone down. Yes. So it's yeah. really interesting to see then how these things are affected. Um, Liv Knowles, who was recently on a podcast from Deakin University, was looking at sleep restriction down to five hours mm. and she was doing muscle biopsies. Ugh. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, and for nine nights. And basically what she found was in that prelim data was when you get restricted down to five nights that um, what the first thing that's going to go is leg strength. So this is interesting, I find, because a lot of athletes will talk about having heavy legs. Yes. So it's actually a marker of being, we'll say, having sleep loss. So, you know, it's a kind of a cue for people to go, when you feel really heavy in the quads and the glutes and the hamstrings, then it's time to maybe increase your sleep or have a look at your sleep and recovery. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, similar to that, we're looking at, um, we've got um, some little insoles that you put in people's shoes and we're just starting some studies where we look at um, how uh, their gait changes and the pressure on their different areas oh. of their feet. Um, across different um, times of day and different shifts. And so we're pretty excited about that um, research. But that, I guess, could pick up similar things. I know it's been used in sort of construction, looking at slips and trips, but, um, yeah, the fatigue effects would be super interesting. Well, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. That would be interesting from an industry point of view because what slips, trips and falls that happen. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a very famous fighter called Tony Ferguson who was, um, and he was training for a title fight in in mixed martial arts and he's a bit of a lunatic this guy he'd be up like a half three in the morning running and stuff and we myself and another guy who's a black belt in jiu-jitsu wrote an article for an online jiu-jitsu magazine about you know this kind of mistiming of of uh, training and you know not having enough sleep and recovery and so on and whilst mm -hmm. fighters have to shift more towards being 
night owls in their training camp because they're fighting very late at night sometimes at 12 o'clock at night one o'clock in the morning with these main card events they also need to allow time kind of nearly shift their whole schedule but interesting enough i think it was the week or two before the fight he was going to a press conference and he actually tripped out the back and injured himself and was out of the fight oh no which is really interesting because you think about exactly what we were discussing there about this like long-term cognition issue leg strength going uh, the gait and so on it oh. makes you think about basically you know are these things playing into a, into account into these little silly mistakes that we make and particularly in in these type of in in shift work environments in mining oil and gas slips trips and falls when you look at the distribution of the data like the Pareto chart is like the number one cause of these and and constantly leaders are like these are stupid things that shouldn't be happening Yes. And so you can clear all the walkways, you can do all these things, you can do all this kind of administrative type controls on education information, but are we considering the time of day effect and are we considering the sustained hours of wakefulness and the cumulative fatigue of people? And the answer I would say in industry is no, we're not. No, and it's very easy when someone slips to, to write it off as human error, you know, that big yeah. catch-all basket. Um, and so, yeah, it's the individual, <laughs> they're clumsy, but actually, you know, it happened at 2 o'clock in the morning and they didn't have very much sleep. And, yeah, it's yeah, it's really important. Yeah, and I, the, the other one I've seen as well, I used to do a lot of ultra running, so that's like 100Ks to 170K runs in the mountains. And it's interesting because it was two time points you'd see people getting injured. One at the start of the race early in the morning. Yes. And I saw a guy break his leg about five kilometers into a race. He, wow. Uh, in the Blue Mountains, yeah. He broke his femur. Oh, that's hideous. Yeah, he had to be helicoptered out there. Um, he broke his femur. And then I've seen other people then sort of after 24, 25 hours of running and mm-hmm. um, falling over uh, on flat ground. And then mm-hmm. also to your account of the DJ earlier on, I've seen people being completely delusional, like, I saw a guy walking the opposite way on a mountain in Colorado because the race was at altitude as well. <clears throat> and about maybe 150 Ks in, he was walking the opposite way. And I was going, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to have a bath. <laughs> so when wow. I came across a marshal, I said, that guy there is hallucinating. And next minute I saw him on the back of a quad bike getting taken to an aid station. So, yeah. you know, he'd probably been awake for, you know, I think about the time before the race, maybe 30, 32 hours. And he was already hallucinating. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Have you, have you spoken to Greg Roach and Charlie Sargent about their work on athletes at altitude? I spoke to Charlie about the work she did. I think it was in South America with the soccer players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating when you add oxygen deprivation on top. Yeah. And I'm, that, that's the thing. Like, I think you have to, I did a race twice at altitude. And the first time I did it was a disaster. And the second time was better. But I went out like two weeks beforehand, one to get over the jet lag and two to acclimatize because it was at 10,000 feet. Mm. And the first few nights was horrendous trying to sleep. Mm. And I remember going for a few light runs, like five, six Ks, and I couldn't even breathe. And I was like, how am I going to run this? I've got to run 170 kilometers next weekend. Yeah, this wow. is not going to happen. But lucky yeah. enough, sort of after about eight or nine days, I, I was fine and then started to feel good. Um, and even just being there doing very light exercise, I lost two Ks straight away. They reckon you can burn up to 30% more energy at altitude. Wow. Yeah, and so everything is affected, uh, calorie burn rates, hydration, and so on. Um, I remember saying that to somebody, and they went, maybe I might go to altitude just to lose weight for a wedding. <laughs> I must admit that's where my brain went. <laughs> <laughs> I've done some work around uh, weight cutting and martial arts as well for fighters, and you know we've had guys like lose you know, 10, 10 kilos in like four or five days, oh, and wow. safely as well, and people are like, can you do that for a wedding? I'm like, yeah, you can, <laughs> but when you have a drink at the wedding, you're going to just fall over. That's the problem, because you're just basically sucking water out of your body you're just dehydrating yourself for a very short time and then you got to rehydrate very quickly yeah so it's just for just it's just for a weighing process and then you've you've got to you people put on that that weight and more again so it's it's not a it's not something you would do for performance you just do it to hit a scale so yeah 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 jill you had this great paper as well called alcohol consumption patterns on shift workers compared with day workers and i've used this reference numerous times it's been out since uh, i think 2012 um this paper with Natalie Skinner, and I've, I've used this on many slides and, and referred back to it as well. And what's great here is you compare shift workers to day workers. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this study and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, so this, it's way more than 10 years ago now. 2012. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so this was a, um, a study where we looked at the um, HILDA database, which is a big um, population database. Um, in Australia, and we were able to um, 
look at about a sample of about 2,000 people. And um, we looked at, they had this one question in it, which is, do you work non-standard hours? And so that was our best um, proxy for whether they were shift workers or not. And then we were able to compare people on non-standard hours and, and standard hours and look at their uh, alcohol consumption. And we found that, um, so we hypothesised that, that shift workers might drink more alcohol than day workers because we know that shift workers often use um, or report using alcohol as a sleep aid. Um, and there's evidence to suggest not only do they use it as a sleep aid, but um, it, that's, that's the, the amounts of uh, alcohol they use is higher um, when they've got higher levels of work stress on top of that. And so what we found in this was that the day workers and shift workers did not have different amounts of alcohol use, but the, um, the uh, shift workers were less, uh, had lower odds of drinking daily or near daily, but they had a far higher odds of, um, of uh, binge drinking, so drinking at risky amounts um, over short periods of time. And so uh, that was an interesting finding for us because it wasn't what we expected. Uh, and so that led us to do some subsequent studies to try and work out why that might be. And so what, why might it be that shift workers are more kind of binge drinkers, if you want to call it that? Well, I guess... Um, the the main reasons after you know the subsequent studies that that we've done um first one is that because shift workers will use um alcohol as a sleep aid and that if they work non-standard hours um they might not need to use it on every single shift so when we talk to um night shift workers for example that might have a rotating schedule they might um have a couple of scotches in the morning when they get home from their last night shift to help them sleep but they might not need to do that when when they're on days or afternoons the second reason is stress. So we, we have seen um, quite high rates of um, sleep aid use and alcohol as a sleep aid in nurses in particular. Um, so if you look at um, just uh, across shift working industries, I think we find about one in six workers report using alcohol as a sleep aid. But then when we looked at some of our nursing populations, it was, you know, as much as 40%. And... Um, that also was higher when um, they had sort of stressful work hours on top of that. So I think there's this interaction between uh, inability to sleep and also stress. And then there's something interesting going on as well about the fact that shift workers work at times of high social value um, and therefore they might not be able to socialise as frequently. Uh, and so um, when they do have a chance um, to engage in um, social drinking, that might um, feel different to someone who is able to, to meet and engage in those kind of behaviours more regularly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I had basically, um, we do some sort of like one-on-one -on -one stuff with them as part of a company. And they had found that recently for them, they, had a, um, they indicated from the World Health Organization audit alcohol tool that, you know, they basically a harmful hazardous drinking and it was down to binge drinking behavior. But he also identified himself that basically he would come home every evening and he would have a couple of beers after work, home, have a shower, and have a few beers. And so he substituted the beer for the zero beers, the zero alcohol beers. And he found that it was this whole kind of, I suppose, nearly like a routine or a signal to his brand that work was over. It was like a kind of a, right, that's over. Now I'm on kind of relax more. And he would find that he's breathing and his whole nervous system would relax with that process. But yeah. it was still happening with the zero alcohol beer. And then I was talking to another friend who was a paramedic and he said the very same thing, that he started to use these zero alcohol beers as well. And it was just basically habit and a kind of a, nearly like a procedure of how you wind down, just like going for a coffee at like half 10 in the morning, you know, grabbing a muffin, grabbing a coffee. It was that kind of break in the morning and same again in the afternoon. So it was very much part of the conditioning of the person. And over the last few years, we've seen more of these zero alcohol beers being uh, available here in Australia, which were probably more prevalent in Europe over the last uh, number of years compared to here. How much do you think that will help in terms of helping with the reduction in hazardous alcohol consumption, do you think? I think it's got the possibility to help a lot. I think the important thing is to 
think about you know the the drinking in a health psychology kind of framework where we know that people do things um that are good or bad for their health but everything that they do is serving some sort of positive function for them so that drink at the end of the work day to switch the brain off and and flick into um, relaxed home mode is very important function um, and it will really help a lot of people to deal with the work-related stress that they experience so if you just tell someone not to drink that's taking away a coping mechanism yeah yeah so the problem is still there. The underlying problem is still there. But this idea of substitution, we've got something else that can solve the same uh, problem, serve the same purpose. That's, um, that's absolutely key in sort of the behaviour change literature. And if you can, if you can um, reduce uh, uh, the use of, you know, alcohol, but have something else there that's serving that purpose, then that's likely to be sustainable. And you're not, you know, creating extra problems um, by removing perceived problems in, in your daily system. Yeah, and even for some people and they have the kind of the, the multifactorial problems that they're trying to tackle, you know, sleepiness, alcohol consumption, obesity, um, even by going from an alcoholic beer to an non-alcoholic beer, it could be reducing the caloric intake by 50% for some of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, reducing those empty calories. And I guess the other thing people don't necessarily realize is even if you have only low or moderate levels of alcohol consumption and it is near bedtime, you're still very likely to be doing negative um, impacts on your, on your sleep and changing your sleep architecture and the restorative value of your sleep. So um, that, you know, can exacerbate everything. Yeah, and that's the other thing as well, as people often say, like you were saying about use as a sleep bed, people still think, you know, and I'm very surprised, still come across people, but doesn't alcohol help you fall asleep? And you talk about, you explain about that change in the sleep architecture, which has been done sort of, you know, to death as well in studies and shows that it might help you fall asleep, but then disrupts your sleep, leads to nocturia, awakenings overnight for going to the bathroom and so on. And so mm. there's no real good effect of it. But coming back to your point about positive behavior change, that's something I started doing a few years ago. Instead of saying to people, don't drink at this time or don't drink caffeine, I've used the opposite and gone, well, if you want to drink caffeine, you should drink caffeine between 9 and 12 a.m. Yes. Uh, if you want to have a beer when you come home from work, the best time to have a beer is probably around dinner time. So, you know, I make a joke. So you've got a bit of soakage so you can you can you can take it in and have so have have your dinner and then have a beer and then you know, really between 6 and 7 p.m. is probably the best time for you to have a beer. And instead of going, don't drink alcohol after 7 or don't drink caffeine after 12. And that seems to be well-received by people. And I kind of learned that from thinking about my own childhood because um, <laughs> it was about 2014, 15, I started doing that because I started thinking, when you're a kid and your parents said to you, you're not going out after 7. Mm. You're like, oh, why? You know, when you're like 9 or 10. But if your parents said to you, right, for the rest of the day, you can go out and play from now until 7 p.m., your mind is completely like reversed in terms of your approach to it. That's right. Um, you know, and recently as well, we were laughing here. I had to go for uh, probably too much information. I had to go for a colonoscopy because I'm getting older in January of this year. And um, you obviously go on this bit of a, a low residue diet for a few days beforehand. Hmm. And then I was like, oh, all I can eat today is jelly. And my wife goes, imagine if you were seven years of age and your mother said, all I can do today is eat jelly. What would you be like? I said, I would have been beside myself. I would have been like, jelly for lunch, <laughs> breakfast and dinner. This is unbelievable. Jelly all day. Yeah. So then I started laughing going, wow, I get to eat jelly all day as an adult. And it was like, it just made me kind of laugh about it and, and have a whole different mindset to it during the day as opposed to all I can eat is jelly. And it's yeah. really interesting, even, even knowing what I was doing to myself, the behavior, and even now I laugh about it. And that's even making me kind of go, oh, that's, that was so funny and such a funny day. But it is interesting how we can even trick ourselves by those little things, isn't it? Oh, you're absolutely right. And that goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier about cognitive reappraisal and looking at things as challenges rather than uh, problems and how that's really related to how people cope with shift work. It's that ability to turn turn something that's not so good into something that's much more positive mm. um so yeah jelly is awesome now now yeah. i want jelly <laughs> <laughs> jelly please <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting what you said about the numbers around the alcohol consumption because in two separate papers recently one of the shift work paper that i just mentioned we actually found in that paper that approximately um, using that World Health, Organiza World Health Organization audit tool that we found, and I'll just get the number here, I want to say it's about 36%. Um, I'll find here so much information on this one. Um, 
yeah, 27 people or 36% of the shift workers consumed alcohol at hazardous or harmful levels. Yeah. And so this is interesting because when you talk to people, and I, I find actually per, from working in different countries, Ireland and England, or let's say the UK and Ireland and Australia, our measures of what's hazardous or harmful are so different. People are like, yeah. well, what's wrong with having four or six beers a night? I'm like, in actual fact, that is a problem. Yeah. yeah. And then there are other people who go, yeah, well, I don't really drink that much, but I just go and get blitzed on a Friday or Saturday or sometimes both nights, but I don't drink during the week. And they look at you as if like you're going to say, oh, that's perfect. But when you measure that up against the, the audit tool, that's that's just as bad as, you know, over consuming alcohol every night. So I think sometimes what we think is normal in our society here and what is actual normal compared to the, the, the scientific literature are two different things. Completely. Absolutely. And then on the other side of that, we I did a uh, we did a research paper in um, long distance swimmers, which was basically on a non shift working population, and we had it published recently um, in the Journal of Sport Science and Coaching, where we looked at twenty four master swimmers that were aged thirty nine mm. on average, and and this was forty two nights of data here. So we were looking at them. Uh, this is myself and Spencer Roberts, who you might know, Spencer Roberts from Deakin. He does some oh. research in sports and sleep. And um, we published this and it was interesting because in this one as well, 20% of them who weren't shift workers, day workers, 20% of them and very focused on their health, obviously trying to train them for a 20 kilometer ocean swim. So you think very focused on health, 20% of them had harmful or hazardous drinking, which lines up with what you were saying, Jill, I think one in six are people having this sort of behavior. And it's really interesting talking to people because they sort of defend it as if it's normal. It's really fascinating that that seeing similar kind of traits across multiple different groups from, you know, healthy, you know, serious type of amateur athletes to shift workers and into the research that you did a couple of years, a number of years ago, finding the same thing. So it seems to be across our society. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, we have a really interesting relationship with alcohol in Australia and um, I I have uh, Irish uh, family, so I think it's pretty similar um, in Ireland that, you know, anything that happens, you have a drink. So yeah. you do something good, you have a drink. Someone dies, you have a drink. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we do have um, this link between alcohol and, and socialising. Um, and so some of the, the um, patterns that we see are cultural and social for sure. Um, and so it's hard in some of these studies as well to work out you know, what is the factor that is, um, or is it all of those things? So is it culture? Is it workplace practices? Is it shift length? Is it rotating shifts? Um, but overall, if you look at standard hours versus non-standard hours, it is interesting that the, that there's higher levels of binge drinking in shift workers. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right there on the Irish culture. I'm just thinking back when I was in the military. It was like, you go away, you come back, get drunk. Oh, it's a really nice day. Let's let's knock off early and go to the pub. Oh, it's yeah. piss and rain. Let's go to the pub. <laughs> it's to Kristen. Let's go to the pub. It's a wedding. You know, it was so much was was alcohol centric. And um, yeah, but then there's other good things about that as well, which is I, I can't remember who told me about this, but there was a study, there was something in the UK. I'm gonna have to I'll it'll it'll pop into my head like three o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up. <laughs> where basically all of these factors, alcohol and smoking and so on was basically showing the opposite in an in area in London, or sorry, an area in the UK, huh. because basically it was being used as, um, it was a really good way of social connectivity. Yes. Yeah. And so when you unplug from that alcohol, we'll say of that and cigarette smoke and going outside and so on, you can lose a lot of friendships and you can lose a social circle if you're not part of it as well. And I think some people are afraid of that. Um, yeah. I've had a couple of people say to me recently, well, if I can't go for a drink, what else am I going to do? That's right. Yeah, it's so, about trying to find a replacement behavior that serves the same purpose. Yeah. Yeah, which is we, tricky. Which is tricky. But I think what might help is actually this um, Jill that was released yesterday. And it's kind of interesting that we we have this conversation and it was delayed because it seems like the, the gods were in our favor because this was released yesterday from the Chambers of Minerals and Energy in Western Australia. Now, today is the 25th of May when we're recording this. So this episode won't be out for a little while, but... This document was released yesterday, and for context here in Western Australia, there's been some inquiry. There has been an inquiry, basically, into I suppose we'll say sexual harassment and behaviour um, in Western Australia in the mining industry. So there's been lots of stuff in the media about it, 
And over the years beforehand, there's been inquiries into mental health, into fly and fly out, into sleep and so on. And it seems to be now painting a picture where we've got a number of problems happening with lack of sleep, high fatigue rates, mental health being an issue, um, lack of connectivity with families. And then this other one here, which I think, you know, fits into this, it's a, another piece of this, this jigsaw puzzle is around um, alcohol consumption, which is obviously um, a significant um, part of this. And to give a bit of further context now, and I, I haven't read through any of the inquiry reports in detail, but you can see here, it's about eliminating sexual harassment in WA resource sector. And big companies like Rio Tinto and BHP have been uh, as part of this. But there's been reports of people like, you know, getting drunk and following people to rooms and bad things happening, you know? And we don't need to go into all those details, but, you know, if, if that's so much, that level of alcohol consumption wasn't there, maybe it would, it would, you know, reduce the risk for people as well. I'm not condoning or saying that justifies the behavior, but um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And what the Chamber of Minerals and Energy have done is they brought this uh, safe and respectful behaviors, industry alcohol guideline. Mm -hmm. And as you can see here, if anybody's watching the YouTube version of this, you can see some of the things that they're bringing in for the requirements, um, which is some of the stuff that we spoke about um, uh, around the, the zero alcohol beverages. So the availability of those like zero alcohol beverages, yeah. including the provision of drinking water at no cost um, ensure availability of variety, varied uh, drink strength options, such as mid strength or low, low strength beers, uh, prohibition of alcohol served in the form that encourages rapid consumption. Like so two for one offers or three for one, or, you know, six Corona's in a bucket for the price of four a four drink limit for all residents over a 24 hour period. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time working in mining. I would see guys, particularly in that change over there, which I showed you on the shift work schedule from days to nights, they would yeah. stay up really night and get drunk. And sometimes guys would go to the bar when the bar was closing and buy 10 drinks, there was no limit. Yeah. So it's kind of removal of that stuff. Availability of food options for alcohol is served. Mm -hmm. um, some people actually just go straight to the pub after work and don't eat dinner yes. on mine sites. So this is another thing that happens. Um, employees obviously serving alcohol, um, you know, meeting the liquor license requirements and so on. Prohibition of people being intoxicated while at accommodation facilities and actively encourage a culture of moderation. So um, I know this, this would be obviously um, a topic of debate. And I've seen some of the comments on LinkedIn today, you know, this is like a nanny state. We're not trusting people. This is, this is too much. What about people that just like and enjoy a whiskey after work? There's no provision for that. Um, why can't I just have one beer? And then other people are like, this is brilliant. Um, and so on. So I'm interested to know, Jay, what do you think your, your initial thoughts on seeing this? Because I know you haven't seen this information, but what's your initial kind of reaction to it? Well, I think it is really interesting because um, if you look at, um, if you look at sort of the mining sector and it's a 24 hour nature, and the fact that a lot of, um, we know a lot of um, employees are sleep deprived. And then you look at the kinds of changes that happen in people's brains when they're sleep deprived. So we see um, sort of an increase in, because um, uh, of the changes that happen in the sort of the reward pathways and and, um, and so forth. We, we see that uh, people don't necessarily make great choices about um, their behavior. Uh, and also things like food consumption and so forth. And then if you um, look at what happens to um, people's social behaviours, we see sort of an impairment in the ability to socially interact and an increase in um, antisocial behaviour. So we've got that kind of brain uh, background, which is um, making it diffi more difficult for us to emotionally regulate and interact socially. And then if you look at what alcohol does, and we've already talked about the fact that the, the cognitive consequences of alcohol impairment are pretty similar to sleep loss, it, it's sort of acting in all of those areas as well. Um, and so the, the effects are, are additive. And so if we think about an environment where we've already got this predisposition. And if you look at other studies of people who are sleep deprived and then given alcohol, the, the effects are, are worse. And so um, I haven't read the whole document, but the idea of um, assisting people to make safer choices in these kind of environments, I find appealing. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd be interested to look at the rest of the document and sort of engage with the debate a little bit more. Yeah, this, this document here obviously doesn't go into the whole, you know, I think um, 
into the whole inquiry. It's like three or four pages on it and gives some references here. So it's a very much a kind of a, a very brief overview, but then also, you know, gives into the, refers out to the uh, framework for um, eliminating sexual harassment in the, in the resources sector um, yeah. and respect that work industry toolkit. So it's very much coming from the side of around safety and security, I suppose, if you want to wrap it up as that for, for men and women, particularly yes. women, um, and not so much, but I think it will have some positive effects on shift work and recovery and performance. I think it, it should do, given the fact that in that last paper, I said about having such high rates of alcohol consumption and such low rates of sleep, yes. you would think that it would do nothing but to help that, um, seeing as we have these low amounts of sleep here. So for me, there can only be positive effects. But interesting enough, talking about, um, you know, the sort of container of, of people going to work in this area and, and choices and connectivity, um, the other thing is for some people, some people might be kind of secretly going, thank God this has happened. Now I won't be forced to drink lots on change overnight, yes. or I won't have to drink lots. So that kind of peer pressure, and it sounds funny, but I know guys in their forties are like, well, if I don't go to the pub with the guys, they're going to think I'm an asshole. And like, you know, I have to go out and have a few drinks and I'd rather go to the gym. And you see this kind of emerging these shift work environments, coming back to your, one of your first points is on site, you see people who go to the pub and you see people who go to the gym. And just stay to themselves. And it's kind of two different groups. And it's like it's like Harry Potter and Voldemort. They hardly ever meet, you know. It's like this two opposing worlds. And you know, it's it's very interesting to watch. But now people might feel like oh, I don't have to be that, you know. I really like that that point. And certainly when we think about um food consumption and we look at um, you know, say uh, hospitals and we look at nurses sharing food overnight. Um, some of the nurses we interviewed talked about the chips, coke and chocolate of night shift and getting together for this big shared buffet of, of junk food. And there were certainly a number of, uh, of our participants who said, and we don't really like being involved. If it, I just eat it because it's there. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I, um, you know, have to bring something like a massive sandwich to stop myself from eating the stuff. Hmm. Um, uh, and so, and then I went to visit... Um, another hospital um, system in Victoria and they had actually um, looked at healthy food options but not uh, carrot sticks because a carrot stick doesn't have the same social cachet as a, as a chocolate cake but yeah. they looked at yummy um, kind of food options that you would choose if you're sleep deprived and you're looking for a reward pathway light up in your brain um, and so um, they made those available and that that's one of the first times I've seen um, sort of an intervention catering to this kind of specific thing around food. If you want something sweet, here's something that's sweet and healthy. Here's something that's carb-filled and healthy. And um, that's made a really big difference to them. And so um, that's, a you know, the idea of substitution can still serve that morale um, boost without having the other associated negative consequences but I like your point about the culture and creating an environment where you don't have to have a drink um, because yeah. certainly some people do feel like um, oh it's just part of the social environment I need to do it people will think I'm weird if I don't yeah yeah and I think look in, in that context as well for shift work environments I think other things need to be made available not just the option of the gym or the alcohol i know some areas do this you know to provide maybe you know like kind of a men's shed on site for example or a tool shed type of thing or uh, offer little classes or 20 minute talks at night time for people to go to to have yoga classes they might bring up a yoga instructor for a few nights mm -hmm. there's a variety of different things that can happen to allow people to you know explore some other things in their downtime knowing that it's limited time only so to give people options of some variety or you know putting on like a kind of a table quiz or different things that are happening or a table tennis tournament yeah. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I, I recall like when I was younger, I went to um, I went to South Lebanon on a, a UN mission as part of the Irish army. And, you know, we didn't have any alcohol in these little outposts when we're on the, the border of Israel and Lebanon doing this UN mission. And mm -hmm. but we did have like a pool table with a table tennis top on a, and a dartboard in a very small area. And so you create these little competitions of like playing table tennis, pool, darts. And then, you know, guys would would exercise in this small little compound, like lifting weights, doing body weight stuff. But you know, kind of when you have these um, options, you will make use of them or even just a stationary bike um, yeah. and you have little challenges that will happen. And, and people tend to, you know, make these little challenges when, you know, it's a bit like kids, you know, I give them a few things and I'll make a game of it. Well, adults are just the same as well. We'll, we'll try and do something with them as well. But if we're 
just given easy options like sit over there on your ass and drink beer, we'll probably just do that if we're given the option. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people that don't find it easy to socialise and so um, alcohol sort of makes it easier. But similarly, these little games and when you're doing something together, that starts people talking and brings them together to sort of make it make it easier because it's not like when you were five and you just stood on your front lawn and any other kid that came up was instantly your friend. I think yeah. we need a bit of a hand as we get older. Yeah, for sure. Jill, thank you very much for coming on today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I could go through your hundred odd papers here and, and have an hour conversation probably in each one of them. Um, it was absolutely great to have you on today. I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to follow your work, get in contact with you or um, just want to maybe give you a million dollars to research, how could they do that? <laughs> <laughs> ah, so um my email i can be found on the unisa website so by my email is jill.dorian at unisa.edu.au um i'm also on twitter um and i'm also on facebook so um i'm pretty easy to find definitely accepting donations of a million dollars i always say that i'm like someday it's going to happen some some rich philanthropist is going to just go i'm going to ring that person and give them a million dollars that's that's my goal before i die and then people are like he's the guy that got me a million dollars in a podcast so yeah a lovely goal <laughs> jill thank you very much really appreciate it. thank you